Warm Regards is supported by Wonder Capital, an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest directly in solar energy projects across the U.S. It is a win any way you look at it. You can earn up to 8.5% annually, diversify your portfolio, curb pollution, and combat global climate change, all while supporting the domestic solar industry here in the U.S. Support this show and create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash warm. That's wondercapital.com slash warm. Wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Warm Regards, a dialogue between scientists, journalists, and other folks at the front lines of climate change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine, filling in for Eric Holthouse, who is in an undisclosed location working on a top-secret project. For today's episode, it really feels like there are so many things that we are not going to talk about. We are not talking about the ongoing assault on the EPA, or the fact that the President of the United States just used an executive order to roll back climate protections. We're not going to talk about the fact that his budget includes devastating cuts to NOAA, including the elimination of Sea Grant and other programs that help monitor our climate and our oceans and coastlines. We are not going to talk about the total farce that was the House science hearings on climate change uh, yet. (laughs) And it really feels like these days there's a constant fire hose of things to react to if you care about the environment, and it can feel really demoralizing to wake up to another round of headlines about budget cuts, anti-science attitudes, extreme weather events, and how climate change is going to threaten your favorite things. Seriously, if you come for my maple syrup, we are going to have words. But you can't be depressed all the time, so for today's show, we're going to focus on uh, something awesome, uh, including some exciting and controversial ideas about how to make the Arctic a little more resilient to climate change, and uh, maybe stem some of the climate change that we we have forecast in the near future. Joining me, as always, today is uh, Andy Revkin, a journalist with ProPublica who is waiting to take your climate change leaks on signal. Hey, Andy. Great to be with you, and yes... <laughs> nice. Uh, have you gotten any leaks yet? I mean, you don't tell oh, me what yeah. they are, but just like say yes or no. Yes, totally. Sweet. Okay. I want to. I'm going to leak something to you, even though I have nothing to and, leak. And I'm surrounded by by even by just brilliant people who are, have been doing this for years and years, and they're 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 just like leak central. That's awesome. I I, I know this is like the tiniest and most insignificant silver lining, but there's just something that makes me feel a little bit like a. I don't know, like this is like secret agent man or something. <laughs> like, I, I, I have nothing to leak, but knowing that I could leak makes me feel good. <laughs> so um, our guest this week is Ross Anderson, senior editor at The Atlantic and author of a recent piece on how Russian scientists are trying to stave off. And I know what you're thinking when I said Russian, so chill out. Uh, how Russian scientists are trying to stave off catastrophic climate change with a little project called Pleistocene Park. Uh, thanks for joining us, Ross. I'm really psyched to, to talk with you about this. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jacqueline. Uh, and thank you. Uh, you should, in your intro, you missed the part where you played quite an instrumental role in this piece, uh, both in talking to me about it and about the Ice Age, and then also in dealing with the Atlantics. Um, I, I think they'll forgive me for saying uh, quite tenacious and even annoying fact checkers uh, in the aftermath. 
I actually thought that was pretty great. Um, it was one of the more rigorous experiences I've ever gone through, just in terms of making sure the science in this piece was was really on point. And um, I was I was very impressed. Um, yeah, and, and and the finished piece is really fantastic. Uh, I it's called Welcome to Pleistocene Park, and uh, it's it's one of the best long form pieces of journalism I've read in a really long time. So I'm so I'm psyched to, to talk to you about it. Oh, thank you. Me too. So I guess my first question is, what inspired you to to write about Pleistocene Park in the first place? I mean, aside from the fact that the Pleistocene is awesome. Yeah, it is awesome, isn't it? Um, I had been sort of ambiently aware of this project for a while. First, I should say that when it comes to writing, I sort of edit the science and technology and health coverage here at The Atlantic. Um, and previously, I was at Aeon Magazine, where I had a similar role. And uh, so as an editor, I'm looking at all kinds of subject matter. But as a writer, I tend to gravitate towards subjects that involve humans dealing with quite long timescales. And so this project had natural appeal to me. And um, an editor here at our magazine named Don Peck, he's actually the deputy editor, reached out to me and said that... Uh, he really wanted to uh, see a piece written about Pleistocene Park, um, and uh, immediately, just because it, it had to do with the Ice Age, and you know, woolly mammoths were involved, and it was this sort of plan that could unfold over centuries. Perhaps this is just sort of right in my wheelhouse. So, what is Pleistocene Park? I mean, what what exactly is this idea that um, you know really forms the the crux of of this piece and this project? Pleistocene Park is a geoengineering scheme, actually. It is a climate change mitigation project, which is to say it is, uh, its founders wish for the Earth to not be warming so fast or not warming at all. And the way they'd like to accomplish that is by uh, really repaving the Arctic, uh, or much of the Arctic, with grasslands, with the grassland ecosystems that were there in much of that area, during the Pleistocene or Ice Age, and um, doing it with large herbivores, including potentially uh, lab-grown woolly mammoths. Okay, wait a second there. Uh, for for I mean, for those of us who have not been following this uh, this literature <laughs> really closely, or or the debate, I should say as well. Um, when you say lab-grown woolly mammoths, what do you mean? The idea of resurrecting extinct species has, of course, been with us now for a number of decades. Um, mostly as a matter of mythology or science fiction, most famously in, in Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, from which Pleistocene Park sort of takes its name in a really cheeky way. Um, and a lot of people think when they hear about, oh, lab-grown woolly mammoths, they think, great, like, that must mean, because we do in fact have flesh and fur from woolly mammoths that we found intact uh, in the Siberian tundra. Um, and elsewhere, and so they think, oh, it must be that uh, we're taking a cell um, from one of those and and just firing it up, dropping it into um, the nucleus of an elephant cell and uh, spitting out a woolly mammoth, but that is not, in fact, uh, what the plan is. Um, George Church, somewhat controversially, uh, has instead embarked on this plan to use CRISPR to edit the genome of an Asian elephant um, to give it woolly mammoth-like traits, um, including long fur, um, uh, antifreeze blood, uh, a layer of fat under its skin, 
basically the idea is if you can make an elephant that can survive in the Siberian tundra in January, you have yourself a mammoth for all intents and purposes. What's so cool about this to me, or cool and dark, and you know, in the way that can get people all riled up, is that it combines like four different levels of things that people find controversial. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like the the bingo card. <laughs> you know, there's CRISPR. CRISPR alone, you know, this is the sort of, uh, you know, it's like a word processor for for life and uh, it books. And I was at some, oh, South by Southwest a year ago, and there were these pretty high level security people. And it was like the one thing that they had on their minds is like the end, end times. And so, so just that alone, and then you have the geoengineering layer, and then you have the, uh, uh, let's see what else there's. There's got to be another layer. Well, the there. Russians are involved. Oh, well, the Russians are involved. Yeah, right, right. Uh, is it going to be like the Trump, the Trump, the Trump Jurassic Park? I mean, Trump Pleistocene <laughs> Park. Potentially, like invasive species, maybe. I there don't you know. go. Yeah, yeah, that's I right. Think, like, I think you're going to hit the bingo card. Like, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So, one thing that I find really interesting about this idea is it sounds like science fiction, but a lot of the pieces of this puzzle have been playing out in different areas of science for a while now, as you say, Ross, this idea of resurrecting extinct species or sort of making a sort of hybrid of an extinct species with a contemporary one, like uh, an elephant mammoth hybrid or a mammothy elephant. Um, But also just this idea of rewilding, right? When I, when I hit grad school in 2005, you know, rewilding was the, the real controversial topic, this idea that you would take animals that had gone extinct from a region, but were still alive, or maybe their closest analog, and put them back in a place so that they could perform some ecological functions that were thought to be important to that ecosystem. And when this idea was first proposed by Josh Donlin and others, there's this idea that you would take maybe elephants and lions and put them in the Great Plains, which of course, and all the folks of you know Kansas and Nebraska were like, wait a second, you know, nobody talked to us about this. Um, but you know, it's. It's, it's interesting because there's really been a, a renaissance in terms of how we think about our contemporary ecosystems as really being out of time in a way in terms of the loss of these Ice Age herbivores. I mean, this is the focus of the research in my lab um, is that these big animals really do play important roles in their ecosystems that you know may actually make the ecosystems themselves more resilient to climate change. But with this Pleistocene Park idea, um, it really goes even a step further. It's not necessarily just about making the tundra more resilient to climate change. It's actually about potentially staving off catastrophic climate change. So can you talk a little bit about that? The basic idea is that, you know, uh, sitting underneath the tundra and much of the taiga in Siberia and in Alaska in the Canadian Yukon is this big block is the wrong word, but it's an interesting way to think about it, uh, block of permafrost, uh, frozen soil, Um, And the frozen soil in those particular areas has a very high carbon content such that if that all that were to melt as the climate warms and as we know, uh, the climate is warming very fast in the Arctic indeed, uh, you would have carbon emissions that were just enormous that are like something like more than the annual output of uh, U.S. carbon emissions. Uh, And so... It's really important to keep that permafrost frozen in the ground, and no one has really come up with a good idea for how to do it. And replacing the tundra and the forest with grasslands, as you would do with these large herbivores, um, is a way to keep that permafrost frozen for a couple different reasons. Um, For one, uh, there's just the albedo effect, which is to say 
the sun uh, reflects off the lighter grass um, more than it does the darker trees where those areas are forested. And that keeps it cooler. But it's also just a poorer insulator in the winter. So that thin layer of grass and the snow on top of it, which would be trampled in many places by these, you know, sort of huge herds of animals, ideally, um, you, you basically the, the freeze from the winter will pe- penetrate even deeper um, than it does now and would stand a better chance of keeping the permafrost frozen. I'm curious if this led you to think more general, more broadly about this, uh, this, you know, this being one of the keystone issues of whether you call it the Anthropocene or not, this moment where we've developed the capacity not just to change the climate, but to change biology, and not just, you know, tweaking away a disease, but literally um, inventing, designing critters, just like we'd be designing a car or something to a certain extent. It did... How much of that resonates in you as a science writer more generally? Andy, that's a great question. Uh, one of the first big features I ever wrote was on bristlecone pines and was pegged or, or sort of framed them as like these ancient trees in the Anthropocene for uh, Aeon Magazine. Um, and uh, it's interesting. It's been sort of an obsession of mine since then, that whole Anthropocene framework. And I think there are some decent criticisms of it even, uh, but we can talk about it another time. Um but uh, I've been so sort of obsessed with it that, like, I have an injunction from my our editor uh, on the website not to sneak it into headlines too often. I can sort of get away with it once a month, uh, and then they're like, you know, the layperson doesn't know what that means. Um, but, yeah, I mean, very. this is very much an Anthropocene story, uh, and I sort of tried to weave that in without saying it. I mean, I have a sort of bit at the end where I say kind of in this age where humans make and remake the world, and I'm nodding directly at the Anthropocene idea there. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I, it's interesting, one of the things that readers of the piece have come back to again and again was a quote from one of the Russian scientists, Nikita, where he, you know, that when I would talk about kind of ethical concerns around mammoth cloning or ethical concerns around geoengineering, um, both Nikita and his father, Sergei, had quite a dismissive attitude about it. They're sort of like regarded as a quite American piety um, that like, you know, they were kind of like, look, I, he said to me, I was raised in an atheist country. You know, we are already playing God. Like this, you know, this kind of these American hangups about playing God are just sort of silly and childish. Of course we are. Look at the effects we're having on the earth. You know, we, we, our whole project this century is trying to do this better. And that's what we're engaged in. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I've been pretty glib through this conversation about the idea of cloning woolly mammoths or, or Pleistocene Park, and, and that doesn't necessarily reflect my my feelings about it. I mean, I, I get jazzed about this this discussion, but it's still somewhat abstract for me, um, and uh, and and it doesn't necessarily reflect my own feelings or the writings I've you know done on the idea of cloning mammoths in particular, um, in terms of more from the perspective of the animals themselves and what it means to be a mammoth and, and all of the culture that mammoths have as a, as a very social species and a matriarchal species. And, you know, just from the perspective of what do you do with a baby mammoth in a lab and how, who teaches it to be a mammoth? Who is that, who is its community? And is a mammoth more than just the sum of its parts? And, and so, and, and then of course there are these broader discussions about, you know, ethics in terms of, um, you know, a lot of these questions about even just genetic modification. Um, but, but of course I think you're, you're right. It's, it's interesting and to think about it in, in the context of, you know, by t- 
talking about these extremes, we sort of are able to push these kinds of activities to the side and say that this is something different than what we're already doing, right? We're already modifying organisms. We are already, um, and I'm not just talking about, you know, GMO foods per se, but, you know, we've been modifying organisms on this planet for thousands of years through our actions. We've been modifying our soils and the composition of our atmosphere. We've already introduced species to Mars, right? I mean, so this idea that we can somehow stay pure and and sep- somehow separate from from those activities, or, or that's something that scientists are doing in the lab, as opposed to something that we're all doing every day with our actions is is I think disingenuous and 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 it's it's an interesting point I, I think it's a the 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 Zimovs have a kind of an extreme uh, you know view, but at the same time I I do think we need to own up you know, just how much we've modified the planet. And that's one of the other reasons that I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea um, of, of Pleistocene Park and by the idea of rewilding as well, because I feel like these are, there's a whole suite of these very controversial conservation uh, strategies that kind of become necessary in an era of global change where we have, you know, climate change, species are going to move around and having a sort of hands-off, pristine wilderness approach isn't really realistic or, or effective or um, or even, you know, even valid um, at this point. And, and I think we really do need to grapple with this idea of how hands-on do we need to be to get our climate system where we want it to be, to uh, protect the species that we care about. And I think these kinds of outside-the-box um, conservation, you know, ideas like Pleistocene Park really force us to have those conversations about how hands-on are we willing to be to uh, to achieve the goals that we have. Yeah. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. And Andy, you've done some writing, I think, that's pretty eloquent on this point. Um, I w- yeah, uh, around conservation in general, when people talk about pristine wilderness and so forth, it's sort of, that always rankles a bit for me because, uh, you know, the I mean... You can you can't step in the same river twice, right? Like nature is in flux by its very nature. There is no I mean that was one of the things that I really wanted to interrogate with Sergey talking to him. He he struck me as I say in the piece as having an almost existential longing um for the ice age. And uh you know, I just wanted to like the ice age itself would not have been permanent had human beings never existed. Right there will always be change, um, and and sort of owning up to the fact that we are involved in a values discussion about what sorts of change changes we want and what we like, and not imagining that we can sort of retreat to some pure state. I think yeah. is 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 the Anthropocene framework, I suppose. Yeah, for sure, it's about intentionality. You know, we we backed into the climate problem doing all this stuff, and despite a few scientists like Arrhenius in eighteen ninety six. And even, uh, you know, much more recently, this is still a fundamentally new notion that we're uh, we're the first species, as I wrote a long time ago, to become a planet scale force and, and be able to look up and go, hey, wow, look what we're doing. <laughs> you know, it's cyanobacteria two billion years ago did the same thing, but by flooding the atmosphere with oxygen, but they weren't going, hey, wow, look what we're doing. So, so it's it's a really profound thing to then take take ownership of that. And, and just as, as you were just saying here, you, you know, you're talking about an example where it's kind of a bio-geochemical f- climatic mm. action all in one <laughs> That's right. huge leap. Um, and uh, it, what's good about it uh, is it, it's a narrative that, that it crystallizes these kinds of questions that 
that we 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 just uh, you know and it's really as, as you also mentioned when your editor wisely said don't use the word anthropocene it's a tiny 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 fraction of the human species who's even aware of these kinds of questions uh, uh when i wrote yeah. this big reflection on the anthropocene a year ago i said the best thing about the word is the conversation around it but then i i had a line in there i i, I said i i'm quite sure that 99 percent of the people on the planet have not heard that word yet so yeah and I, that might even be a uh, that might even be overly optimistic well and i mean i think there have been some quite justified criticisms that it might be better termed as the capital of scene or the euro scene mm. or the white dude of scene oh the manthropocene is the best still <laughs> yeah beware of the right. manthropocene <laughs> Um, no, and I, I thought that uh, the elephant, I mean, one of the things that really attracted me to the story when I was sort of um, writing up a kind of a, an approach and how I would sort of go at it was the symbolism of the elephant and all this. I was just like, I, I couldn't believe it. was like the story, the story of dreams, you know, that somehow the woolly mammoth, I mean, the elephant is already, as I say in the piece, sort of the symbol of kind of dignity and mystery and wisdom. Um, and And really... It's kind of uh, the sort of ontological peak of nature, right? Like when humans look astride, look at the natural world and sort of pick out the things that are most like them, the elephant is always on the short list. And so sort of returning it to its previous stature and extending its range back to the Arctic, you know, I mean, uh, until humans came along, right? Uh, the elephant family, you know, was like at the bottom. They were everywhere except Antarctica, basically. Um, uh, and so, yeah, giving it, giving it that sort of that huge range again, I just thought that was that had this mythopoetic quality to it that was inescapably Russian <laughs> um, and just really, really cool. What if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Well, you can. It's very possible with Wonder Capital. Wonder has an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest directly in solar projects across the U.S. The platform allows you to earn up to 8.5% annually and diversify your portfolio while combating global climate change. You can't beat that. In fact, in 2016 alone, the solar projects that Wonder Capital helped finance are going to offset CO2 emissions from 2,791,823 pounds of coal burned. Your investment in Wonder's fully managed solar investment fund goes directly to helping U.S. small and medium-sized businesses install solar panels. As those businesses repay their loans to Wonder, you receive monthly payments directly deposited into your bank account. And you can also support this show and help us continue to do what we're doing. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. That's wonder with a U, W-U-N-D-E-R, wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, one of the things that I've said is, you know, when people have asked me, would you want to clone a woolly mammoth? And, and I've, I've had very conflicting feelings and, and those feelings have changed somewhat over time. And initially I would say, you know, absolutely not. But if it was done, I'd be on the first plane to Siberia to see <laughs> the mammoth in Pleistocene Park because I also understand that that sense of longing, um, you know, for for me, you know, I never I never get to see my study site, right? It's only, I'm only ever looking at fragments. I'm only ever looking at, you know, little bits and pieces that were left behind um, 
it's like it's like you only get to see the crime scene, so to speak, because um, it's it's really like you know ecological forensics and uh, and so yeah, it's just this um, this um, amazing opportunity to to see something that has been lost. You know, we don't we don't get to fix our our problems or our mistakes very often, and you know whether or not humans were completely to blame for the extinction, you know, is a is an ongoing debate. Um, I tend to fall on the human side of the of that debate, um, but you know whether it's the cause of an extinction or the cause of of climate change or or you know the the decimation of modern elephant populations, we so rarely have that chance for redemption. And there's something kind of deeply I don't know, attractive about this idea that maybe we could, we could do something to fix it. And, and, and yet still uh, there's this, this is the, there are these haunting aspects of it, just as you mentioned with the, the special nature of elephants. Um, you know, I, I did this piece, I just looked it up. Yeah. 2008, right after I started dot earth, I did this piece called on elephants, memories, human forgetfulness and disaster. And, and this is a study that said that, uh, when uh, hunters were taking out the um, uh, elder maternal, you know, the mom, the um, matriarchs in these um, elephant groups, and they lost, the, the groups lost their memory. They lost the capacity to under, to know where the water holes were when there was a drought. And the, and these older ones were the ones that, the, the groups that still had their mater, matriarchs were the ones that were able to find water when there was a drought. And you got to wonder, you know, um, in, in those frozen genes, you know, what, what capacities are there? Would, would this mashup thing be, have mashed up, you know, memories of the, of the Serengeti and, and, or, or <laughs> India, you know, and, and, um, and Siberia or what? I don't know. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's very much an open question as to whether there would be a humane way to introduce these, um, uh, very extremely social animals uh, into a world where there were no other woolly mammoths and there was not this pre-existing culture. Um, and I think, I mean, I I tried not to shrink away from that problem in the piece and try to actually describe it in some detail. If I can confess here, I don't say this explicitly. Um, <clears throat> and this is the sort of kind of raw and ugly Anthropocene calculations that we're all now engaged in. But... Um, I do think that, you know, if you were to have, you, you could legitimately reintroduce the elephant family to the Arctic in a way where they eventually became a self-sustaining population, you know, that was healthy and uh, all the above, uh, it probably would be worth the transactional costs of some heartbreakingly terrified um and, you know, some of the early animals would no doubt live quite miserable lives um, that, would, that would indeed be haunting. I mean, it would be tragic to even consider at the time. But if, if those could be the ground floor of this kind of pioneering population, I, I do think it would be worth it in the end. Uh, am I right? What do you guys think? Well, I mean, if the alternative is, you know, poaching and extinct, you know, and eventually extinction, um, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's hard to, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's easy to say, oh, of course, if the alternative is, you know, no, no elephants at all. Um, but at the same time, it just definitely makes you really conscious of the, the terrible responsibility that we have, um, you know, to, 
think of, you know, in a very humane way about these the the consequences of our of our of our conservation actions to you know to the to these animals that we're trying to protect. Um, one thing we've left out of this conversation uh, are are the people, right? This is to get back at this idea of you know the problems with rewilding. The problem with bringing elephants into the Great Plains of the United States is that there are so many people there, and uh, and so many you know a lot of our food is produced there, whereas. You know, there are people who live in the Arctic, in the high Arctic, but um, many fewer people. And certainly, um, you know, you'd be dis- displacing fewer people by putting elephants in, in Pleistocene Park than you would um, by trying to fit them into, you know, Nebraska somewhere. <laughs> it just shows you what a, rich story you've, what a rich story you've helped to ex- illuminate. Oh, well, I'll take it. Um, yeah, no, I think that that is definitely a true. In fact, that was when I first was talking this about this issue. So E.O. Wilson, right, has this um, idea to rewild half the earth. And a number of anthropologists um, have come out and said that's crazy, uh, that that would be visiting a kind of tragedy on some of the kind of weakest members of sort of our global human society, whether it's kind of uncontacted tribes, um, or I'm sorry, not uncontacted tribes, but people, uh, whether it's people in rural areas that are, are living, you know, barely above subsistence, you know, sort of forcing them to pile into cities so that half the world could be wild would involve some, some ethical concerns around human beings that would be quite, uh, could be intractable. And yeah, I tried to say that in the piece where, I mean, even Yellowstone is meeting some small but legitimate resistance as it spreads um, out. And, you know, people don't, as a rule, like to see bears and wolves showing up uh, <laughs> outside their fences. Um, and, I mean, that may include people on this call, right? You know, it's like... Well, a, it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, too, because if, if you think about it, you know, there were people who were displaced when Yellowstone was established as well. And then... Now that we have these parks that we think of as sort of wilderness, we want to keep the wilderness contained in those parks. And as the as the you know animals start to to get out, whether that's bison or wolves, um, you know there are these human wildlife conflicts. And and just thinking, you know, one of the one of the conservation stories I've been following is um, uh, the the cougar slash mountain lion slash puma slash catamount, whatever you want to call it, where we've been seeing this this these expansions and sort of recovery of you know mountain lion populations and you know there's there've been some that have been tracked pretty extensively and the, you know there's the one that's now had some human wildlife conflicts and and they've been following it for quite some time and and it, you know maybe ate somebody's sheep and so that now they're going to kill it and so it's it's like that there's a license out to hunt this you know mountain lion and it's it's just um it, it just makes me wonder, you know, if we can't, if we can't even bring ourselves to figure out how to coexist with, you know, wolves or deer, how are we ever going to live on a planet with mammoths? Yeah. I mean, like there, it's not an accident that large predators have disappeared from the earth, right? It's, it's, it's because people don't like living next to large predators. Um, yeah. Yeah, hey, could you t- could you remind readers how big that area is though? So that part of Siberia, it's, it's I mean it is. Absolutely I guess if you massive. were going to choose a place to start an experiment like this, that would probably be. 
Yes, and that's not a bad place. <laughs> I mean, and these Russian scientists, you know, Sergey and Nikita, uh, they make that point quite forcefully. You know, they say, mm-hmm. "Look, these are these are the places where no one will bother us about our experiments." You know, <laughs> that we are there are very few the population densities there are just really threadbare. They're lighter than you know northern Canada or Australia even, um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, there are people there. And in fact, um, you know, there's a moment in the piece where. Um, Nikita and I are looking at one of their gorgeous muskox, which um, is an extraordinary animal if you've ever seen one in person. Got this sort of beautiful shimmering coat that allows them to um, be quite poised uh, (laughs) in the winter, even with just really extreme uh, temperatures. But their coats are also coveted uh, by poachers and hunters, of course. And so I asked him, look, I mean, you know, the Pleistocene Park is somewhat close to a really depressed mining town. Um, And I asked him, you know, do you get hunters, do you get poachers? And he sort of admitted to kind of having uh, brokered a deal of sorts with the local mafia, you know, to keep to keep those hunters and poachers out. So it's uh, those are the realities, right, of, like, having a wild... And that's they're still on a very small scale, you know, when you want to zoom out to all of northern Siberia and Alaska and the Yukon. Uh, some of those negotiations are going to be much more fraught. There's one other. We're probably running out of time. I want to ask you one one other thing because about your your interest in long time scales, because um, all the talk of it's feeling crowded and um, the half Earth concept not being feasible. That's feels appropriate right now. But I've looked at these. There these. There's, there's this group in um, outside of Vienna at IASA, the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis. What a great name. Um, they do this long time scale modeling of human demographics and stuff, and uh, they did these papers that show that r- there are scenarios that that uh, come out around twenty three hundred with sort of two billion prosperous people, <laughs> and without a calamity between the, n- now and then. It's mostly through demographic change, you know, aging and stuff, which would mean there there is this planet ahead. You know, it's like that undiscovered country in Star Trek or something. There there is a possibility of a planet ahead where where you have sort of a where we're past this cresting weirdness we have right now. We're, you know, we think of these things that, like our current trends as being like the new normal, but they're not. They're, there's a profound change coming after mid-century, and it could go in various directions for humans. But So you, you could have a planet with 2 billion people living prosperous lives, having invented some new way of living on coastlines that are constantly changing. <laughs> That'd be interesting. But uh, And with plenty of room for critters, whether they're mammoth, elephant hybrids or, or whatever. Um, so that's that's another way to think about it. I think so. I think you're right. Uh, and I mean, one of the reasons I love writing about long time scales is precisely because it does illuminate um, the, the the sort of rich variety of possible futures that you know could await us. So we just have a couple minutes left. So I I just wanted to to say I have been really impressed with the Atlantic's kind of coverage of the resistance and especially its coverage of the war on science. Um, just some of the really best and very timely pieces are, are seem to be coming out on the Atlantic. And I, and I'm wondering, like, have you been involved in those decisions or is, has, has the Atlantic always been really great at, at this topic and I've just been missing it or was this a conscious decision you guys made? Like, we're going to get this beat down. Yeah. I mean, so our science section, uh, uh, for reasons that have to do with me and many that do not have to be with, do with me, 
um, was launched right uh, right when I arrived here almost two years ago. Um, but uh, to the extent that I lead it, it is very much in like a team mom kind of way. Hmm. Uh, like, uh, you know, the initiative to go after the war on science stuff uh, and, the, and all of the kind of new policy reporting that we're doing in science and tech and health is uh, 100% attributable to our staff writers, to, to Ed Young, um, who has been amazingly, you know, a guy who can write, you know, these lovely Attenborough-style <laughs> things about weird animal behaviors, and then has just out of nowhere picked up a policy beat um, where he's writing, you know, legislative stories that are so sophisticated that our politics team are, like, reading them with great interest, uh, which says something about the kind of reporter he is. Um, and then, Not you to know, mention getting plucked out of the ether by, by Bill Gates. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and then, you know, Robinson Meyer, uh, Olga Kazan, and Adrian LaFrance, and Sarah Zhang, and uh, the list goes on. But, like, it's been, you know, after the election, uh, you know, we try to take... Uh, we're not taking sides in politics, obviously, but we we uh, had some very serious sit-down meetings that you know had almost an emotional tone to them, given that that period was kind of a, a soul-searching period that uh, continues to this day. I think for for people who are in our cluster of uh, businesses, let's say. Um, but we all did sit down and say, you know, what what are the changes that are coming? that are going to touch are the subject matter that we cover and how do we want to be responsive to that. And, you know, uh, I, I think that we've done an okay job so far in, in trying to meet that challenge. And it's extremely gratifying to hear from, from you guys that you think that we are. Yeah, I mean, well, my husband is a writer and I'm a scientist. And so it was like a, the perf- it's the perfect magazine for us, right? Because you guys publish, you know, a great short story every issue. And then we've got all the awesome science now. Um, was there anything that you would want to ask us or be- or say before we wrapped up? I'm grateful that uh, to have had this chat, and it's it's I've done some podcasts and radio things on this subject, obviously in the wake of this piece, and none have been sort of as stimulating and high level as this one. So thank you uh, for having me on. Come back too. Oh, would love yeah, to. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I love I love that you I love that your beat is like the long is like long time scales like that's your beat <laughs> that's because I I feel like as a scientist that's my beat you know in terms of um, just yeah this the the what drew me to this was the idea you know the idea of of deep time um, and if you've never read it I highly recommend uh, S- uh, Stephen Jay Gould's Time's Arrow Time Cycle which is all about deep time so it's a really one of his lesser sort of known books but cosine. Yeah. All right. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. You know, we barely scratched the surface on this subject. So if you have ideas for future shows, you want to nitpick something we said or cast your vote for or against Pleistocene Park, or would just like to let us know how we're doing, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, and we are also on Twitter as at our warm regards for andy our guest ross and our new producer jesse ann baines i'm jacqueline gill and this is warm regards we'd like to thank wonder capital for their support of the warm regards podcast you can directly invest in solar projects across the u.s and earn up to 8.5 percent annually with wonder's award-winning online investment platform so remember to support this podcast and the U.S. solar industry, go to wondercapital.com warm. That's wonder with a U, W-U-N-D-E-R, capital, 
wondercapital.com slash warm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good.